Welcome to the Two Real Cinema Club. I'm James Zika. And I am Andres Lorente. And on the Two Real Cinema Club, we watch a couple of movies. Usually one is older and one is new. And we make some comparisons between the two. And this week, we bring two that sound a lot alike and maybe look a lot alike. Um, <laughs> two classics of the Indiana Jones mold. Uh, the new one is called Dial of Destiny. And we compare that to 1980, is it 1980, 81, somewhere around there? Um, yeah, 1981, I think, yeah. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Now, now called Indiana Jones and the Raiders oh, yeah, of the of Lost Ark, I yeah, think. Yeah. Well, that gives it the franchise uh, cred that it needs. Um, yeah, I look forward to talking about these two films. It's almost like talking about one film in one <laughs> summary. That, uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's time traveling as an important, uh, important plot point <laughs> yeah. uh, in one of these films. And uh, this is not a coincidence, yeah. I think. Um, let me, let's, let's, we'll do the socials to kick yeah, off, though. Absolutely. Um, so as... Uh, always, we are on Twitter. We are at Two Real Cine Club uh, at twitter.com. We are on Instagram. We don't look at. I don't look at the Twitter. I'm not sure. I feel like is 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 looking at Twitter a political act now? We what we need to do is get on Threads, isn't it? That's anyway, right. That's uh, the new one. That's that's what all the cool kids are doing. We are on Instagram, uh, the quasi Threads. We are mm-hmm. Two Real Cinema Club. Uh, at Instagram.com and we've got a blog good old fashioned that's like a 20th century internet to realcinemaclub.com where we uh, write various nonsense uh, and uh, you can email us you can address your emails to to realcinemaclub at gmail.com so let us know what you think uh, that's the address to use if you want to tell us your opinion if you want to ask us questions if you want to offer us sponsorship or if you want to confess your sins in a non-judgmental environment Ooh. and uh, please leave Leave us a review, if you can, on uh, whichever podcast provider you use. If you can find the time and the energy, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, iHeartRadio, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Well done, James. <laughs> so uh, so let's. Uh, we should, we're, we're traveling through time, aren't we, with, um, with the new Indiana Jones movie uh, this week. Uh, the first Indiana Jones movie not directed by Steven Spielberg. So James Mangold has stepped in. I think Spielberg was originally going yeah. to direct this picture. This is, you know, 10 or 12 years ago, I think, wasn't it? Um, and then he kind of either lost interest or moved on to other things. Yeah. And uh, the script was worked and reworked and reworked. And uh, it's been directed by James Mangold, kind of doing his best Steven Spielberg impression. Definitely. Uh, this time around. Tell me who wrote the screenplay, because there are a lot of these guys on this. There are. So so, so Matt, James Mangold does get a credit yep. uh, on, the, on the screenplay. You know, and James Mangold is an accomplished writer. I, I kind of made a little list of the, the previous movies, which I think are his most notable. Copland, um, yep. uh, Walk the Line. Um, Johnny Cash. Is, yeah, yeah exactly. great Johnny Cash biopic. Um, and then originally, I think the script was written by David Kep. Now I, I'm pronouncing it Kep. It's K O E P P. I don't know whether it should be Kerp or Cop. Um, I always say Kep. Yeah, Cop. Maybe it's David Cop. I don't know. Oh, it might be mine did. Yeah. Um, uh, for all that I can't pronounce his name, he is a screenwriter I really admire. Actually, he had a hand in the original Jurassic Park. That's right. He wrote the Spielberg War of the Worlds film, which I think is kind of underrated. Um, he wrote and directed Premium Rush. I don't know whether you've seen that, which is no. a not much seen um, bicycle courier thriller, hmm. uh, which is uh, you know, a great little kind of small picture about cycling. Uh, great fun. So uh, David Kopp, Kep, Kerp, 
Um, uh, all three of them. One of my favorites, all three. Um, and then uh, the script was reworked uh, once Mangold came on by Jez and John Henry Butterworth. Wow. Uh, and I know Jez Butterworth like very slightly. So mm-hmm. we were at university together. Um, you know, and, and, you know, we will have exchanged, you know, 12 or 15 sentences, something like that when we were together. I'm yeah. sure he has not thought of me for 30 years. But, <laughs> um, uh, so he originally, uh, when we were at university, he sold a script to Channel 4 in the UK, actually, oh. which is like, very impressive. Oh, my goodness, he sold a script. He's still wow. an undergraduate. Um, best known, I suppose, for Mojo, which is the, the, the stage play and then later feature, which yeah. kind of brought into promise, prominence. Um, he's kind of he and his brother have been kind of guns for hiring a lot of projects, uh, most notably Ford versus Ferrari, which is oh, also yeah. a James Mangold picture oh. uh, and uh, Edge of Tomorrow, Doug Lyman picture, which um, has got Tom Cruise in it. And so because it's got Tom Cruise in, it's a favorite of the pod. Yes, of course. Well, I always get a little confused when I see so many writers and correct me if I'm wrong, when you see the ampersand, is it ampersand? The and sign. Yeah. That's a team of writers. So the Butterworths are a team and then you have David K, I'll call him David K, <laughs> with the letter, of the word and spelled out after the Butterworth team. And then you have another and, and it's James Mangold. So you've got, it looks like, I would say three teams or three groups of writers you could say on this film. Is that correct? Is that how you understand it as well? That's how I understand it. But you know what? There will probably also be you know, various other uncredited polishers yeah. who have come in. And I find it difficult to believe that Phoebe Waller-Bridge did not also trim some of her own lines uh, and have something to say about the For writer sure. as well. She's an yeah. established writer herself. So, you know, a lot of people are typed on these pages. Um, I have something to say about what has been typed on these pages uh, after we talk about the film, actually. So come, uh, yeah, I've got, I got the hi hat here. Come on, yeah. let, let, humor me, humor me. Let me tell you the story. So, Indiana Jones is back. The film opens in 1945. The Nazis are all but defeated, but they have captured a de-aged Indy with a bag over his head, who is trying to liberate some of their loot with his buddy uh, Basil, played by Toby Jones. Uh, Indy and Basil find one half of Archimedes' dial, which is an ancient orrery-style kind of wind-up clockwork device. And they make it out in one piece after a series of uh, thrilling chases and a big kind of opening set piece um, involving bombs and bikes and cars and trains and mounted guns. And then pretty much half an hour into the film, uh, 24 years later... Indy is retiring from his post teaching at Hunter College, New York, uh, when his goddaughter, Basil's daughter, Helena Shaw, turns up uh, and she is looking for the dial, uh, which they found at the beginning of the movie. So Indy shows it to her, but it turns out that she is being followed uh, by Voller, Jürgen Voller, Mads Mikkelsen, um, who is a kind of Werner von Braun figure. He is... uh, a, an, a sometime Nazi who, who then came to the States and uh, taught the Americans how to build rockets. Um, and he has a crew of henchmen and they're all out to get the dial. Uh, there's another chase. Indy escapes on horseback this time. Um, but a whole bunch of people are killed. And Indy thinks somehow that he will get blamed for the deaths of all these people that Voller has murdered to find the dial. And so uh, he follows Helena, who escapes with the dial, to get the dial back because... 
for some reason, somehow, that will prove that he's innocent somehow, maybe, perhaps. Either way, he traces Helena to an auction in Tangier. Then Vola shows up. Uh, there's a chase. Uh, they escape. Uh, they get Antonia Banderas to help them uh, dive for the other half of the dial. Vola shows up. There's a chase. They go to Sicily to get the remaining bits. Vola turns up. There's a chase. Do you spot the pattern? Yeah. Um, but the final. So the, so the question is, does Vola get what he wants or will Indian Helena stop him before it's too late? Ooh, that sounds like a pretty good time for a sound from an ancient Greek gong <laughs> or maybe just hit that darn dial of destiny should, and see what kind of noise it makes. Should we, should we hit the spoiler bell? Please. We should. Go on. Go on. I got it here. Go on. Are you ready? <laughs> Spoilers are out in the open. Um, I, I must say, you know what? This film was not as bad as I thought it would be. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, oh, I tell you, it's not as bad as The Crystal Skull. Have you seen that? No. No, okay, I, no. And, and I would recommend you keep it that way. Okay, yeah, okay. It's not as bad as, <laughs> as The Crystal Skull. It's like, like we said, you know, this is James Mangold's impersonation of Steven Spielberg, and it's a pretty yeah. convincing impersonation. You know, he's... I think he's watched the films and he's read the books and he's figured out how to do Stephen's job. Yeah. Um, and, and the film you know, does involve stitching together basically a lot of Indiana Jones callbacks. Yeah, it's, it's indistinguishable at times to me, the direction <laughs> and the, the entire storytelling. So uh, I, I watched the first, uh, the, the Raiders of the Lost Ark first, and then I felt like I just watched it again when I saw it out of Destiny. <laughs> uh, so we'll point out maybe some of the similarities, obviously, when we synthesize, but... Um, I would say it was more or less exactly what I expected. So, okay, I guess you went in maybe with with lower expectations than <laughs> I, which is pretty hard to do. So, good on you, man. I mean, it's, uh, you know, there's there's lots of kind of scenes and moments that have just been lifted straight out of um, Indiana Jones's previous films. Yeah. But you know, as as we always say on the pod, the thing we're interested in is the story, and you know, and the story is not about scenes or moments; it's about the characters and. Yeah. Personally, I think the characters here are kind of, they are hit and miss. Some of them do hit, uh, but not all of them do. I think, you know, Harrison Ford, he is still charismatic. He's 80 now. Um, he's playing, now I did a bit of calculating. I reckon he's playing himself at like kind of early 60s. I think, I think, yes, I think India is. 25 years beyond uh, World War Yeah, 20, so, Yeah, 20, right? 24 years on mm-hmm. since 1945. So because the whole movie is like very clearly dated by uh, happening at the same time as and the first moon landings with 1969. Yeah. So it's 24 years on. And I'm guessing he was like late 30s at the end of the Second World War. That's going to be my guess. Okay. Well, Raiders of the Lost Ark is 1936, I believe, or 38. Yep. So we're yes. in there. So how old do you think he was in that film? 30 So so, in that, so that would make him like you yeah, know, 33, 66. something like that, I'm going to guess. Yeah. All right. So yeah, mid-60s, mid to late 60s. And he's playing okay, as an eighty-year-old, like and then, but what about the technology? So he's he's a young man in the beginning of his film. It's nineteen forty-five, and Harrison Ford looks like he's yeah forty years old, forty-five years old, something like that. I mean, yeah, he's he's very well. There's something about the de-aging technology they use, yeah. um, isn't there? I mean, I think that it's very effective, but it's it's so effective that um, you know he looks like young Harrison Ford but he moves like old Harrison Ford mm. and there's kind of there's just a little bit of a disconnect there almost as if you know if they can put his face on that body maybe they should have put his face on a slightly younger body exactly yeah that would be like the, the social network kind of uh, uh, technology yeah. right where they should just use a body double and then put the face on hmm 
I, I guess I wasn't paying enough attention to the film because <laughs> there's a lot of rote sort of activity where he's jumping on a train, he's jumping on a motorcycle, he's punching whoever's driving a truck, and then he's driving a truck. And <laughs> so I think Harrison Ford does that at all ages. So I guess I should have noticed the, his body work a little bit more, but I did not. I mean, at 80, he's still charismatic, isn't he? I yeah. think the, the camera still kind of loves him. Yeah. And, and Indy is still a great character. Uh, I, I think he's, you know, he's remembered fondly for a reason. He's a great character. You know, he's capable, but not a superhero. He's kind of irascible. He's he's brave, but he's not invincible. He's knowledgeable, but he's not infallible. Um, you know, he's a, a complex, you know, rich character that I think, um, you know, we all would like to imagine ourselves as. Yeah, he, he's... They they definitely capture the curmudgeon element of his character, but I think that's actually in the earlier incarnations of Indy as well. It seems like he was always a little bit of a naysayer, yeah. So um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if there's a tremendous arc over all the films, um, but he seems consistent anyway. Um, and there's so many callbacks to the first film that it, that's another reason why I felt like it was very much like watching Raiders again. But uh, I liked some of the touches. Uh, the the scene where he's lecturing in the beginning of the first film, all the women are in, the young women are in love with him, and they're enraptured <laughs> with his how handsome he is. And then in this film, everyone's sort of bored and falling asleep in his class. And I thought that was a nice touch, uh, kind of subtle, but it was clever. Um, the other characters, um, I think, you know, not as not as masterful. So there are there are a bunch of returning characters. Um, John Reese Davis's Salar turns yep. back again, turns up again, and he's you know just kind of a stereotype. Marion uh, turns up again, but she kind of has nothing to do. There is um, Teddy, who is uh, Helena Shaw's sort of right hand boy, and he's basically short round from uh, Temple of Doom, but kind of less characterfully written, I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that you know the, the stumbling block for me, I think, is Helena. So Phoebe Waller Bridge, um, you know, who is. Uh, capable and popular actor um, but i find her character hard to warm to and kind of probably you know, underwritten um it's it's probably worth worth hovering over that for a minute or two yeah um i enjoy her work generally and i, I do find her funny so and there's perhaps more humor in this one than um in some of the previous films um and i think there's a for me, there's a passing off, a passing of the torch, perhaps, where now we're going to uh, a woman lead, perhaps, if there are future films. And some of the sexism of the earliest films um, seems to be gone or sort of melting away a little bit. And I think that's part of the reason uh, um, that she was brought into in this character was written. Because um, I don't remember Basil Shaw appearing in other films. Am I lost on that? Or um, No, I agree. I don't think he does. Another. It seems there's always... There's always a partner in the first film. It's Raven Wood, I guess, and then, um, and then this film. There's Basil Shaw. He was sort of uh, looking for ancient treasures with, but I don't remember Basil from earlier references in other films. But it's been a long time. No, no, I'm sure he's he is a um, brand, brand new, new character. character. Okay. I mean, part of the problem with Helena is that the, the worry is that if you criticize the character. You know, people would just kind of point out that, well, there's a kind of incel misogynist backlash yeah, yeah. that kind of, you know, the, uh, I'm sure there is a sector of the Internet, which I have not visited, which says, oh, look, there, there's a woman indie now. Uh, you know, she must be awful. Feminist social justice warrior types. Uh, why can't we have traditional women in these films? Um, and you know, and uh, any kind of criticism of the character needs to be divorced from that kind of uh, you know, a misogynist a horrible attitude. I think the problem I find the problem with her character is that she's just kind of 
underformed and underwritten. She's droll, but just I don't find her believable. I'm not sure of her motivation. You know, I'm not sure why it is that she wants the dial. You know, it, it kind of she she says all the way through the film, you know, 200 times that it's all about the money. She yeah. says it so much that it clearly can't be about the money. But I can't really find a very convincing other reason for her to be in the race. You know, it's like, you know, does she want to prove her father right? Mm -hmm. Maybe. Has she got tremendous sort of intellectual curiosity? Maybe. Does she want to travel through time? We've rung the spoiler bell. Does she want to travel through time for a reason? You know, any reason? Not really. No. Does she want to stop the Nazis? Doesn't seem that interested in whether they're Nazis or not. Yeah. why, why Why is she chasing around the world? I don't really know. And I don't think the writers know either. Um, and, and, um, when we were talking about you know, Indy's character traits, you know, I, I struggle to summarize Helena, you know, in a similar pithy manner. What is her character? You know, is she is she smart? Is she brave? Is she callous? Is she skillful? Is she calculating? Is she foolhardy? I don't know. I find it quite hard to say. She's sort of a bit of some of those things. You know, I feel like at the end of the day, the question is. Is she sarcastic? Yes. Yes, she is. Yeah. That's her character. <laughs> sarcastic woman. That's it. Yeah. And that's about all the depth she gets allowed. I think she has a, a fairly quick character arc in this film. Um, as someone who has no respect for history, she just wants to sell the antiquities for money. She has little academic interest in them. And by the end, there's just a touch of maybe interest beyond the money. And then she disappears into the streets of New York City. And, and that's why I assume sequels are set up and the franchise just passes from Indy to Helena. So I, I do agree with you, but I think I'm going to go out on a limb here and I'm going to say that maybe the writers did know what they were doing subconsciously because I think this film, this franchise, and her motivation is all about money. <laughs> I think it's really, it's that, I, I feel it's that shallow where she's a good character for the film in the sense that she's just in it for the money. And I, at this point, I think the studio and the filmmakers are just in it for the money. This is intellectual property. This is franchise. This will sell. You were saying it's not doing so well in the box office right now. And I don't, yeah. think, it, I don't think it should do very well, but it'll make its money back for sure and probably be considered a you know classic cinema someday. But um, I think it's all about the money, and I think that's what this film is about. I suspect, I mean, maybe it will make its money back eventually, but I think the budget on this movie was over $300 million. <coughs> Excuse um, me? Exactly. And once you add in, you know, P&A spend, suddenly it becomes yeah. you know, $550 million oh or whatever. And, and actually, you get to that point and you start to question, God, maybe it isn't going to make yeah. the money back. It's possible. Um, yeah, I think I, I would, we'll talk about this a little bit when we come on to discuss Raiders, that in a way it's you know the opposite of that film, which was made cheaply and fast. This film was very expensive and slow, slowed down by the pandemic. But nonetheless, um, they spent a lot of money. Yeah. Um, there is a there's, for a film that has a, a plot point about time travel and time loops. Yeah. I think there is kind of a, a far too obvious loop that an awful lot of the plot is based on. Um, tell me if this sounds familiar. Yeah. Vola turns up. Yeah. Indy steals a vehicle. There's a chase. And this happens. I think I counted up uh, and I think this happens five times, maybe six. Yeah. You know, in the prologue, Vola turns up, Indy steals a Nazi car. In New York, Vola turns up and Indy steals a horse. And then in Tangiers, Vola turns up, Indy steals a tuk-tuk. Yeah. Then you know, when they're in the, in the med, uh, Vola turns up, so Indy steals a boat. And then in Sicily, Vola turns up and Indy steals a car, which looks a lot like a tuk-tuk again. Yeah. 
And then kind of at the end of the movie, Vola turns up again. And this time, Teddy, instead of Indy, steals a light aircraft. So it's six times, actually. It's basically, it's steal a vehicle, the movie. It's a, it's a great advertisement for intermodal transportation. Right? <laughs> That's what came to me. It's just, boy, they, they use everything. They're not, you know, just driving. It's a terrible advert for vehicle security, though, because anything you walk up to, you can immediately drive away. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, they're very, uh, as I said, uh, I think these are sort of formulaic franchise films, and they, for me, they operate on this like finely navigated line of blockbuster simplicity. They're very easy to understand, but they shroud this intentional complexity that somehow explains the story. I think you were right at one point. You said um, that uh, Indy feels like he's going to get framed for murders, but someone actually tells him, I think, in the film, I think you're going to get framed for these murders, and that's why he goes on to clear his name. I mean, it's very obvious, and then it's just, you're right, action sequence after action sequence, um, all revolving around uh, these, these forms of transportation and this miraculous Iron Age engineering, too, all these traps that they set up around the various antiquities to, to keep them safe for the fact that the two dials are split apart, and then there's also the graphica that they have to track down in the Mediterranean or wherever they were. Um, they kind of all, these films really depend on a really simple storyline. It's basically just a long action film with very few breaks, um, but also just the, the complexity of the actual setups just sort of, sort of it puts me to sleep honestly but i mean i don't, I don't think you, you you shouldn't even try to understand it um i did have a question for you about the dials themselves because there are these two parts correct yes and then in the opening scene it looks like they voller correct me again if i'm wrong wasn't he called dr schmidt at one point in this film I yeah I, I think it's something like he has a pseudonym yeah okay. schmidt is just like dr smith okay. i think it's supposed to yeah. be like you know uh, uh, the, the opposite of jones i okay. suppose he's the He's the anti-Dr. Jones. I think it is a pseudonym to, conf- to, to to hide his identity. So the Voller character has one of the halves of the dial that sort of disappears into uh, the river in in Europe at the end of the war. Um, but does that one reappear again? Because then they're finding one that um, Indy has in New York, right? He's got half of the dial, I believe. I, I think that half that Indy has is the half that he pretends disappeared into the river. Oh. I think he puts out this story that it disappears into the river to, to put people off the trail. Uh-huh. Um, so I don't think it ever really disappeared into the river. Well, they were on top of a train. Again, another little bit of transportation there. They were on top of a train, and that's where Voller disappears, and I just did not see who had the dial at that point. So it wasn't yeah. made clearly enough for this viewer uh, anyway. Yeah, so I then think I'm... Harrison Ford is tucking it in his nice leather sh- satchel. Okay, good. Well, that solves one problem for me, yeah. They know how to do kind of uh, nice baggage in these films, don't they? I really enjoyed that leather satchel. I quite fancy one of those. Yeah, yeah. Good. Some handsome luggage. <laughs> um, I think it might be worth talking a little bit about the, the callbacks in the film as well, because yeah. you're in between this this kind of standardised loop that appears six times. Yeah. That guy turns up, steal a vehicle. Yeah. Um, sandwiched in between those are just like a long series of callbacks to all the other Indiana Jones films. And it's not like there's been hundreds of them. I mean, there have been... Yeah. Four before now, mm-hmm. um, so you're a limit, 
there is a limit to how many callbacks you can squeeze out of four movies. But so we get you know objects sliding around the sliding around the floor from Temple of Doom. We get horse riding from Raiders. We get an ancient cave from the Last Crusade. We get a boy driving a getaway car. We get you know red lines appearing on a map. We get melting wax, which is you know a reference to the deaths of the bad guys in mm-hmm. Raiders. We get a rope bridge with a gag. We get bugs on the walls. We get eels this time standing in yeah, for snakes. snakes. Pretty much every plot point feels like it's a you know a nod and a wink to the previous movies it's kind of never ending and a bit exhausting and the last scene of course with uh, marion's character they really go right to that scene uh, yeah, yeah absolutely it, yeah kiss, they just repeat the scene yeah kiss it, kiss it where it hurts or where does it hurt and then they kiss that spot and um yeah it's totally a remake of that scene i, I felt like in part because if i understand correctly this is the last one for harrison ford so i think we're retiring indiana jones Unless they start pre what pre aging him or de aging him again, <laughs> um, so I think maybe they wanted to wrap it up with tons of callbacks just to bring it all uh, home. But I, it, but I think that's really indicative of the entire franchise. Is you're not really pushing characters forward, you're not pushing new plots or new storylines, and it's oh, it's the Nazis again. Why are we still working with the Nazis? I mean, <laughs> I, um, that is good. But I, though I must say, in in 2023, I I am very happy to see another film that hates Nazis. <laughs> okay, they're, 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 I think you know, and um, I've kind of said this before that it's not like they're even both sides seeing the Nazis. They're not saying, well, some of the Nazis were good, some of them were all right, some of them had good ideas. No, they're all Nazis and they're all bad. You know, at the end of the movie. Um, you know, Phoebe Waterbridge kicks one of the one of the Nazis out of the plane, and she explained. You know, he says, "Kind of help me, save me." And she says, "But you're a Nazi." Yeah. I mean, you know, there's there's no uh, <laughs> you know, there's no uh, comeback from that. Sorry, Nazi out the plane. Um, it's it's a bit of a shame that of the Nazis um, that we get, and most of them not very clearly differentiated. Again, this is something which compares poorly to Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, Voller has got these kind of Nazi henchmen, and basically, there's like a really really big one. And then there's a smaller one, and that's kind of that's sort of yeah. it. There's, you know, they they don't really get very much in the way of character. No. I tell you what did surprise me about the film. What's that? Uh, that I really genuinely didn't expect something that kind of um, you know was a pleasant surprise when it happened, uh, which is the climax of the third act. Um, you know, the film is sort of about time loops. Yep. And so you know, it feels like you know the 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 appropriate way to end that is to curl the film right back to when it started you know and they're aiming for that and they're trying to get back to well supposedly 1939 and i was assuming that they would curl back in time to 1945 and the opening of the film Mm. and that's the sort of symmetry that i was expecting so when we end up going back to you know 213 bc or something like that um that was a great surprise um, you know, and it had this you know big bonus that we get to meet Archimedes, and he literally says "Eureka," uh, which was you know what a joy. Um, so uh, you know, I'm not going to pretend that I could predict the whole film. You know what? That climax surprised me, and it was a fun surprise. And they did they did uh, take it to the very end. It looked like Harrison Ford and Indy was going to be retired right there in in two thirteen BC Syracuse. But um, there's a little clever spot where she, uh, being Helena punches him and he is knocked unconscious and wakes up in 1969. I thought that was kind of clever and also helped them <laughs> to avoid explaining exactly how they're going to get back into that perfectly stormed, perfectly timed storm and use the dial of destiny to get back into 1969. So I think they saved themselves there a little bit. Um, 
For me, there was one update that was striking, and it's around sexual agency because Helena's character is always commenting on hot guys and and their sexual potential, and she owns her dress, whereas Karen Allen um, is forced into this ridiculous costume in the next film we'll talk about. So uh, just the fact that she's able to wear her dress without it getting torn away too much um, is a big difference from the first film where Karen Allen is really... Uh, she has no control over her uh, her sexuality, I guess. But Helen is—they made this a big deal. I felt like it was it was just uh, that she was commenting so often on on the cute guys, not Antonio Banderas, but one of his workers, which I guess is <laughs> age appropriate too, which is nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, one thing about Antonio Banderas, so he is the the ship captain and yeah. Spain's greatest diver, yeah. and you know he's a little bit of a wasted character. Yeah. I did find myself scratching my head, thinking, well, why why did he turn up to this? I mean, yeah. it's nice to be able to tell your kids, yeah, I was in an Indiana Jones movie, but um, I'm not really sure why he's in the film. Yeah, and it strikes me that. Uh, it, what a wasted opportunity. The ship should belong to Captain Katanga from Raiders of the Lost Sure, Ark. sure. Um, that was surely the obvious choice, and he's one of the more interesting characters from Raiders. I would have loved to see him come back. Plus, doesn't Indy say, I've, I've just watched my old friend die or something like that? And yeah. We never knew Antonio Banderas as an old friend, whereas we would have known Katanga as someone who... Who did help out in the past? Yep. Yeah, that was it. Was curious. I wasn't. I wasn't sure if like he had a larger role. Banderas did that was just edited out, or if that was it all along. And it's basically a cameo. It's kind of a long cameo. I think that's why it makes it a little bit awkward. Is because even though he's in the film for maybe ten or fifteen minutes, he doesn't have a lot um, in the way of um, dialogue or acting. And and yep, he does die. Spoiler alert. <laughs> I think a Nazi might kill him too. Oh no! <laughs> Incredible! You don't—I don't believe it. <laughs> Speaking about the dialogue, there's, yeah. Yeah, I think there's good and bad dialogue in this movie. Again, we often say, "Ah, oh, the dialogue is just the last ten percent of work." At the end of the movie, mm. um, there is some good, memorable dialogue, and there were some gags that genuinely made me laugh out loud. There's yeah. one little exchange where Corvola tells Indy, "You should have stayed in New York." And Indy reposts, he says, well, you should have stayed out of Poland, which is, yeah, that's the right sort of thing to tell a Nazi, isn't yeah, it? Well yeah. done. That's, yeah, it's, that's kind of, you know, hi- historically literate and funny at the same time. And the other line that really made me guffaw, after um, Indy escapes from Vola, time number two or three, and he's uh, ridden a horse down the New York subway. Yeah. <laughs> and he eventually makes it back onto a platform somewhere and he just stops this random guy on the platform and tells him, Mr. Hold My Horse, yeah. and then gets on the, on the train. <laughs> I'm so glad that they had that little, that little line of dialogue. That made me laugh out loud. On the other hand, though, there is a lot of kind of too demonstrative uh, dialogue. Yeah. Early in the film, when they're fighting on the train and they're heading for a tunnel, and Basil shouts out "tunnel" when there's a tunnel coming, mm-hmm. or all this, all this notion that Helena keeps saying it's all about the money, and she yeah. repeats this again and again and again and again. Um, or you know, when Indy is on the train and he's uh, early, early in the film and he's going through all these artifacts that the the Nazis have stolen, and they're all fakes. And he says to himself, "Fakes? These are all fakes." Yeah. <laughs> why, 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 who, are you, who are you saying that to? I don't I understand. It's, why are you articulating that out loud? I think they're just telling the audience. It's a little bit of a nod to the audience that we don't even know what we're doing, so we have to tell you exactly what we're doing. <laughs> Uh, so it's just, you know, and and you know, five minutes thought you know reveals you know, lots of different ways where you could prove that something was a fake. I mean, it would be very easy to pick up something that appears to be metal and snap it and prove that it's made of balsa wood. Yeah. And you know, we in the audience would immediately figure out, hey, that's a fake yeah, knife. Exactly. Um, 
so uh, you know it's it's a shame to to spoil the film with this demonstrative dialogue but yeah what can you do um i will say that this film um unlike the other one that we watched um has a few more periods of less action not a whole lot but there it gives the story a little bit of time to breathe and the audience a little bit of time to breathe um and there aren't many, but I noticed that there just seem to be a few more down moments, and it just kind of mixes up the pace of the film. It does, as you were just said, it's there's you know six action scenes in a row, all of them probably ten, ten minutes or more, and just the only thing that differentiates them really is the mode of transportation. Um, <laughs> so it's nice to have. There are a few quieter moments in this film that I think allow allow the rest of it to be believable. If it's all action all the time, I just find it even less believable. And obviously this is a film where you have to suspend disbelief, but it's nice to have a few moments. And you could actually have a discussion where you're rationally explaining something that you really need to, as opposed to throwing in one of those um, like salve lines where you're just explaining the story very quickly to the audience. There is some... I have some questions about the pure mechanics of the story. Mm. Uh, I've kind of two, two, two things to say about this. First of all, you know, as as we always say, kind of stories about characters, mm. and so it needs to be like the characters' decisions that drive the story forward. And I think uh, for a little bit too much of this film, events happen to the main characters, but not necessarily yeah. as a result of what the main characters do. Um, you know, things are happening to them. It's not. Uh, I mean. Um, you know, for example, you know, I don't really quite understand why it is that Helena and Voller all turn up on the same day. I think it's that you know, Voller wants the dial and he's been looking for 24 years, something like that. And he's I guess he's following Helena, is he? Mm, um, Which is why they turn up at the same day that she does. Well, they have an agent who is uh, posing as a student in the class where Indy is teaching. So I think that agent has been following Helena somehow and tracking her down. It's it is quite ridiculous. But but I just feel a little bit like you know, the thing that makes the story happen isn't anything that Helena chooses, and it isn't anything that Indy chooses. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's yeah. like, like it should be that, like, that Helena you know, trusted Voller and she tr- struck a deal, and yeah. so it's because of her choice, her decision, yep. or maybe it's that you know Indy his vanity you know forced them on an adventure. You know, and it was his kind of volition that created these events. But but you know. None of these things really happen. It's just events happen to them. They happen to be in the place where the events happen and, and they are the, the passive recipients of story events. Um, so you know, that's a little bit unsatisfying, although we'll perhaps talk later on about how maybe, perhaps I'm being generous, but I think maybe that feeds into kind of the themes of what the film is about. So uh, I think maybe we'll talk about that. What struck me was that this film it seems a little bit more antagonist driven than protagonist driven so it's mm. they're always you know worrying about what Voller's stealing at any one time or what he's doing and where he's going and you know he ends up sort of following them very often but it's more in reaction to what he's doing so it is a bit more driven by that character um which is not you know very very cliched character dare i say <laughs> um named Voller too i i named a character Voller too at one point because it's uh, to voler is to steal in French. That's so someone who steals oh. things. In German, it's actually, I just looked it up, it's uh, full of, something is full of, but um, <laughs> voler, you could easily use that. You know, I'm sure they sometimes use another language to come up with a name for someone. So he's like this thief, right? He's been stealing stuff. And they're, they're all thieves. And even Helena, you know, suggests that quite clean, clearly. She says that. And it makes you think about Indiana a little bit too, because he is sort of into the antiquities and he's basically stealing as well. So it's all about these thieves who are stealing from each other. Other and maybe there's a theme or something meaningful in that. I don't. I don't see it. But 
I, I can't help but notice you mentioned uh, cliches I, a moment ago. I did. I, I wonder. I wonder whether. Do you think there is any reason for us to call the Cliché Squad over this movie? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> cliché Squad. So I've, I've written down a, a couple of, of cliches that really stood out to me um, on this, but I'm sure you'll be able to find twenty more. Um, the, the one that really stood out was is the subway train that always pulls away just in time, <laughs> just as the bad guys turn up, so that they can bang on the window a little bit, but the train still goes. Yeah, I, I wish we had that degree of train reliability oh, I know. I, in the UK. Yeah. Well, you need yeah. a few fallen leaves, and the trains are all cancelled forever. Whereas in New York, yeah. you can ride a horse up the tracks and park <laughs> it on the on the platform. You can have two near misses, and the train will still depart on time. Incredible! What it's service? Almost Swiss like reliability. <laughs> Swiss. Yeah, exactly. Um, also, uh, I tell you what, we, an Egyptian man turns up, and just to remind you that he is Egyptian, he is wearing a fez. <laughs> yeah. Oh right. Yeah. Oh yes. Oh, he must be Egyptian then. Yeah, he's wearing like you know the traditional garb of an Egyptian gentleman. Oh, really? is, is the actor Welsh though? I thought John. I think he is, isn't he? Yes. <laughs> yes. A uh, Welsh. Egyptian man wears the fez. Yeah, yeah. That's a that's a cliche for sure. Um, also, this notion um, that kind of on the on the boat, um, Helena she performs a card trick, and this I feel like I've seen this many times as well. You know, a character performs a card trick as a kind of metaphor for their character or their attitudes. Um, and again, I feel like this is like a real sort of simple little bit of easy to shoot character sh- shorthand. Yeah, you know, someone who's a little bit duplicitous, they're doing a card trick. Um, you know, and, and everybody kind of says, "Oh, how did you do that?" Oh, because they're a, you know they're a convincing liar. I feel like I've again I've seen that just a little bit too much. Yeah, I've got more. I have some too. <laughs> to show, oh, should, yes. should we just leave them in peace, or should we go on? Oh no, I want to elucidate them. Really, yeah. One of my Absolutely. favorites, is, and I've used it too, is the "I know a guy" cliche, <laughs> which is uh, kind of introduces the Banderas character, like he's got this friend with a boat conveniently where they need to go. And uh, Indy just knows the guy. So um, that's definitely a cliche for me. Um, these sort of child geniuses who were uh, originally into like resourceful, petty street crimes. They, uh. They're very resourceful on the streets, but they also p- prove to be very helpful to um, archaeologists in search of antiquities. <laughs> um, yes, they're able to commandeer any kind of vehicle. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to see Teddy flying that plane with no experience and to see the actual plane operator sort of wake up and let him continue to fly. <laughs> uh, that was great. That was great cinema. Um, the Nazis are, for me, they're just beyond cliche now. It's just, uh, um, I guess it's just like it's permanent cliche somehow. Which we should just we should just call the cliche squad every week just to say, oh, we saw Nazis <laughs> oh, again. We saw Nazis. 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 Uh, I think you're right though. To a certain extent, this is. I don't know if it's the luck of the. It's probably the luck of just timing that this film coincides a little bit with the the right sort of rising all around the Europe and around the globe. And also um, with that comment you made about, you know, like you should never have invaded Poland or you should have stayed out of Poland. Uh, um, just the, the, the Putin fiasco in Ukraine too. So I think they kind of got lucky ah. on that. It does lend a little bit more, I don't know, authenticity to the, to the story, but I think that's just dumb luck. Um, the other thing, uh, another there's a lot of mumbo jumbo in this film. So one one cliche for me is that you can build a time machine, machine, but you need to fly into an incredibly predictable weather vortex to make it work. That sort of thing. Like the time machine on its own doesn't work. 
like it does in Star Star Trek films, uh, just beaming <laughs> people in and out of the future and the past. Uh, but you have to fly into this storm in order to to actually make the whole thing work out. And the way that Archimedes would have calculated that is beyond me. So I think, well, I mean, that's just, to a certain extent, that's a cliche, perhaps just for the indie films is all this ancient engineering to protect the their antiquities. And we see that in both films here today. So um, there are lots. I, there are lots. I probably have a few more, but. I, I mean, I, the way I think the Dial of Destiny works is that it doesn't actually create or do anything, does it? It's just like a, it's just like a, a little electronic timetable. That I presume that you know these vortices happen all over the place. Okay, and somehow the dial is just able to to show you where the vortex is that will take you to the place you want to go, something like that. So it could actually have just been recorded on a, on a piece of paper with a pencil. So it's just very accurate meteorology. 2,200 yeah. <laughs> yes. years in the future. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, that, no, I get it. Uh, there's, there's, there is more to say about the Dial of Destiny, but I think it will probably come up when we talk yeah. about Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yes. Um, because we are comparing A with A.1. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> here. So let's, let's take a break uh, and we'll have an ad and then uh, we'll come back and we will travel through time back to 1981 Ooh. and talk about Raiders of the Lost Ark. Get that Dial of Destiny for time travel. This episode of the Two Real Cinema Club is sponsored by No Causation Proved Vitamins. Uh, they've they've sent us in some marketing material here and a thing that I have to read out. So I'm going to I'm going to yeah. read this out. You have to. I don't think they realise this is an audio podcast. So I'm, you're just going to have to imagine the pictures that they've sent. Oh, okay, sure, but, sure, um, sure. But, well, but here are the pictures. So this this is what they want me to read. So some people are exceptional, just like you want to be. They're the great achievers. And they've got a picture here. They yeah. climb the tallest mountains, mm-hmm. run the fastest races. They work and play to the very highest standards. Also. They may take NCP vitamins. Look at these people. They're incredibly beautiful. They have thick hair and glowing skin and confident smiles with great teeth. Now look at this bottle of vitamins. Here's someone landing on the moon. Here's someone winning a rowing competition. Here's someone inventing something that looks very complicated. Here's someone being given a golden cup. It's gold. It's made of gold. A lot of gold. It's obviously really important. Now, here's a picture of some vitamins. No causation proved vitamins. We're not allowed to say that our vitamin pills do anything because they don't. But look at these fast-moving pictures of attractive people and then decide for yourself. No causation proved. Brought to you by the same company that makes It Does Nothing pheromone spray and... (laughs) Definitely a waste of money, skin cream. <laughs> no causation proved, because real thinkers don't let proof or evidence get in the way of their buying decisions. Send me my samples. I don't think they send samples to me. The stuff must really work. They yeah, great. Great. the pictures. They sound great. Send me. Send me. <laughs> Back back to what did you call it? Uh, Indiana Jones 
Hey. Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, but you can't. Which, Indiana... I don't know which, but surely Indiana Jones is one of the Raiders of the Lost Ark. It should be Indiana Jones and also the other Raiders of the Lost Ark too. Uh, yeah, he's definitely among them. They're all Raiders. It depends. Yeah, absolutely. Think, it probably depends on your perspective because the Nazis are always the bad guys. I think they're the Raiders, but it's important with the um, the newfound perspective of the past to say, hey, yeah, this guy from the United States is also a Raider. He's also a Raider, yes. He's just as bad. But I think you were calling it Indiana Jones A and A.1 or something like that. Yeah. So I guess we go back to A, the first version. Um, they are going to feel very similar. It is directed by Steven Spielberg, who you said was going to direct... Um, Dial of Destiny, but did not. Um, and this is the first of the entire franchise. Screenplay by Lawrence Kasdan, George Lucas, and Philip Kaufman. So again, yeah. I don't know how much they work together. It's obviously a George Lucas idea in the beginning. Um, and this is pretty early for both Kaufman and Kasdan, who go on to make films like, uh, in Kaufman's case, Unbearable Lightness of Being, or Kasdan's case, um, see Big Chill and yeah. uh, Grand Canyon. So... Um, they go on to make some different films, but this is uh, really early for both of the other writers credited here. Um, of course, it stars Harrison Ford and um, Karen Allen in particular. Um, I didn't write down any of the other names of the actors, so if you've got some that you want to shoot out, please go ahead. I, have, well, I mean, uh, Denham Elliott, John Reese davis uh, as Salah, who, yep. who reappears in Dial of Destiny. Exactly. Ronald Lacey as uh, Major Tote. Uh, a very kind of charismatic bad guy. Oh, yeah. And of course, Alfred Molina early on as an expendable yes, character. Yes, a young Alfred Molina, yeah. Very, very young. Yeah, boy, it makes me feel, boy, he's a little older than I thought he was, but uh, he has been acting for a long time. So you'd think he was acting since 1936 because that's when this takes place. Should you explain <laughs> why we chose this film? I mean, it seems a little obvious, but... Do you have any other questions for me, Councilman? This is one of my all-time favourites. Yeah. Um, I don't know about you, but this is, this is very much the film that I consider you know, the textbook of adventure movie making. Yeah. It feels like the er uh, film in this genre, even though you know it was not. And there were other adventure films which preceded it, and it borrows a lot, I think, from well, from Gunga Dean, Gunga which Dean, we watched exactly. last year. It borrows yeah. a lot from. Um, from Saturday morning serials, which are you know, probably largely not seen or, or preserved yeah. or widely thought of these days. But um, it, it was, I suppose it was the first revisit of these older themes, you know, a modern take on this kind of 1930s adventure idea. Yeah. I, I've, I've lost count of the number of times I've seen this film. I mean, no. it's not, you know, a hundred. I've probably seen it six or seven times, sure. but I enjoyed every single viewing and I still get something from every time I see it. Lots of swashbuckling. Um, definitely harkens back to the old Errol Flynn uh, films, the Robin Hood films and all those uh, uh, films where they're yielding or wielding their swords. And it was made fast and cheap as well, wasn't it? Because Spielberg had just come off the back of 1941 which was, you know, largely considered a flop and, mm. you know, the critics hated it and he kind of really needed a hit. Um, and uh, I think they had to make this film, yeah, quickly and without spending too much money. So I think it was a fast shoot um, and they sort of scraped it together and, and, you know, shot it with a lot of energy you know, and quickly got through the material. Well, let's get into that material. Thirty-six. Indiana and his gang are on a sort of caravan in South America, 
and followed by Indigenous Tribes. Um, Indy, is, this is his first introduction. It comes via hat, lasso, and gun, so uh, you know this guy's up for some action, and we as the viewers are not disappointed. Uh, as always, they're in search of treasures um, that are kind of just more or less lying around, but they're protected by insanely ingenious security systems. Uh, the classic sort of Rube Goldberg machines are uh, in the film from the very beginning, but uh, Indy steals a treasure uh, but loses it to the rival German archaeologist um, who I guess is working for the Führer, the Führer. Um, now, I'm going I'm to put my finger up here. I yeah. think the rival archaeologist is French. Oh, he's, uh, he's, he's Belloc, Belloc it's true, isn't he? Yeah. yeah, I think he's supposed to be French. So he's paid by Paul Freeman, who's a British actor yeah. again. But um, he, I think he's supposed to be French. Be, I remember that. But presumably a kind of like you know, a proto-Vichy sort of uh, yeah, yeah, French. Yeah. It's definitely French a collaborator trader. of some sort. Um, anyway, um, I think one thing we forget about in these films is at the core... Indiana Jones is an academic, and he's teaching, um, but he always wants more treasure and uh, adventure. But we do see him uh, back at school, and I think it's in California. He's not at Hunter College, where he ends up in the Dial of Destiny, but yeah. he's teaching in California somewhere when um, some sort of un- undetermined, exactly, government agents come to him, and they say, um, and, and to his department head, and they suggest that, that he and... Uh, uh, his crew search for the the search and find the Ark of the Covenant, which is a chest that contains the Ten Commandments that are etched in stone, and they have some sort of magical world-beating powers that the Nazis want to use uh, in order to dominate the world. So it's Indiana Jones and this group of Balak, I guess, uh, collaborating with the Nazis in a race to find the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and I've got let me let me interrupt here because I got I got to say I think these first two effectively are kind of first two scenes or first two sequences you know it's such a great introduction to the character because you kind of see both aspects of his character don't you you know you see the adventurer and you see the academic yeah. and you know and it's deliberately played as they're a bit of a contrast and yet it's completely believable isn't it you know he's identifiably the same character who is adventuring with the whip and teaching these youngsters um and you it, it makes him seem like a rich character you know with many different aspects to him rather than you know like a, a weird sort of melange of two different characters who've been squidged together i think it's a very skillful bit of writing and setup yeah i never believe him as an academic i don't i, I can't really accept him as a, a teacher Maybe that's because I'm a teacher myself and I'm not an action uh, hero. I, I just think of him as an action hero that's forced into the, the teaching role. But he's always talking over our heads about various antiquities. So that's why you know he's an academic. Um, but the, the way that he teaches the two government agents, like he gives them this very, very quick little crash course on the Ark of the Covenant. Mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, well, that's a, you know, that's, that's a great little bit of teaching there, isn't it? He shows them a picture and, you know, so he demonstrates some sources and then he draws a diagram for them. You know, he kind of spells it out in a way that they can understand. I think I think there are some teaching lessons to be learned from him. But I say that as someone who is not a teacher. Um, Indy, unlike in most of the films, uh, he does not refuse the call. He sort of he's in. He wants to go on this adventure, um, and I guess this is the 1930s. It's very hard to get a pro- to procure a direct flight to anywhere. Um, so Indy goes to Kathmandu first uh, on his way to. I guess he's going to Cairo ultimately. Um, um, and that's where he finds um, 
out that Abner Ravenwood, one of his old colleagues, is dead, and his daughter Marion, who's a former love interest of Indy, is alive, and she's very drunk on his arrival. Um, <laughs> and trouble follows Indy, and a fight between Nazis who are also looking for the same sorts of treasures. Um, it leaves uh, Marion and her um, pub sort of burned to the ground, um, but she's ready to join Indy on the adventure. They're all looking for this thing. It's the Staff of Ra. They need the, the head of the Staff of Ra in order to unlock the... I've written it down here somewhere. It's the Well of the Souls. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. the map room that points to the Well of the Souls, yeah. isn't it? And yeah. the Chamber of Something. The Chamber of... Um, I think Chamber of Something it should be called the Chamber, chamber of Something. something. If it's chamber not called the Chamber of Something, they should rewrite it and change it because that's a brilliant title. So this is going to get them into the uh, the the Ark of the Covenant. Um, uh, it's worth. Po- I'm going to pause here quickly and just point out that you know these are basically exactly the same story beats as that um, that yeah. kind of opening yeah. section of uh, the Dial of Destiny, isn't it? Yeah, it's identical. You know, there is you know there is a woman, there is an artifact. The bad people turn up at the same time as Indy. Um, you know, there's a fight. Things get completely smashed up while everybody tries to grab the, this this artifact. I mean, yes. it's very, very yeah. similar story beats. And this this one follows uh, the a lot of the other hero story beats. I think pretty loyally. The they get to Cairo and that's where they meet Salah. So they're gathering allies, and the, yeah. the Nazis, just as they did in Dial of Destiny, they sort of um, arrive in Cairo just about the same time. Um, and Balak is already there. So this guy who we encountered in South Af- South America is already in uh, Egypt, where India is going to end up as well. Um, trouble erupts immediately in Cairo. There's a lot of collateral damage uh, with, l- with the locals. Indy kind of, I think, inadvertently and intentionally at times kills a number of people in the line of fire. But it's right, they're brown people, so it doesn't really matter. That's true. And, and he's an archaeologist, <laughs> and that's what archaeologists do. Uh, he does have a quiet time and a drink with uh, Balak, and he learns that the Germans uh, see the Ark as a radio for speaking to God. I thought that was pretty intense. Uh, but Balak and his uh, gang of excavators are digging in the wrong place. So we get out to a, eventually out to the excavation site. Um, but Indy and Salah, in particular, in a very visible but uh, completely ignored private dig of their own, uh, they quickly find the Ark. God is really mad because there's a big, <laughs> massive storm that erupts when, erupts when they dig. Do not steal my radio. Yeah, yes. exactly. Don't steal my radio. <laughs> Uh, bad Nazis are there good ones uh, capture Marion and they force her to wear a white satin gown for an interrogation which yields nothing about uh, Indiana Jones uh, location or um, what his up to his doings um, so uh, they're, then they're, there's again this stealing back and forth Balak manages to steal um, the Ark uh, from Indy and leaves Marion and Indy in that famous snake pit. Um, but they they re-escape, I will say, very quickly. And then, boy, this sounds like uh, the last film. Um, <laughs> they chase with trucks, planes, yep. horses. Uh, they commandeer <laughs> some trucks. They beat up drivers while driving unsafely, by the way. Um, and You're right, not one seatbelt in the sequence. It's yeah, shocking. Ne- you Absolutely. never see that. Um, and never a driving sequence without some sort of interference from someone. Um, these exploits all sort of depend on incompetent Germans, but ironically, I've got to say, I've never met an incompetent German in my now very long <laughs> life. These are people who get stuff done efficiently, effectively, and normally without getting beat up by a nerdy academic. So it's hard to suspend disbelief there, uh, but these Germans are, they're vulnerable, I guess, um, 
ultimately the population of Cairo that earlier um, seemed to be against Indy because he murdered a small percentage of the city. Um, he suddenly, that, that community <laughs> suddenly hides and protects him. Uh, I think Salah has something to do with that. He's probably told them, oh, well, Indy's one of the good guys. So, so uh, he escapes with uh, Marion, but without the Ark of the Covenant, which is going to be on another form of transportation not yet utilized in this film, which is a boat. <laughs> An ark is a kind of boat too, isn't it? When you think about ark. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, interesting. They should have just ridden the ark of the covenant. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, they and the 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 ark ends up on a boat. Um, Indiana and Marion um, sort of uh, escape um, once again because the Nazis um, are able to catch up with them and reclaim the ark. Um, but then everyone gets away again. There's a lot of re-escaping. I find that um, <laughs> like no one is ever trapped for very long. That's where the the famous scene I think of Indiana being all beat up and then Marion asking him where it hurts. Um, we we saw that revisited in the end of yeah. the Dial of Destiny. Yep. So that's a kind of I guess a, it's either a famous scene or a scene that we're supposed to remember if we've been big fans of the franchise. And it is a, you know it's a cute scene. It, it is, is a cute it is scene, kind of cute. I and think. it's one of the slow moments. This film has very few yeah. of the slow moments. So that's why it, it does it does it hits. It's a scene that hits because everything around it is just. Um, really too heavy, I think. You know, it's like too many chases and too many characters to to follow, getting killed or maimed or beaten up or whatnot. Um, so the, the Nazis get the, the Covenant back, um, and inexplicably they start parading it into the middle of a remote sort of desert part of an otherwise lush Middle Eastern, I guess, island. I don't know why they did that. Um, and then when they <laughs> open the Covenant, ghosts, apparitions, and just pure evil escape making people insane and burning them sort of alive. Marion and Indy do the don't look up or the nope thing we've seen in other films recently of not looking, and that's enough to to save them. I found it to be kind of a very weak ending for such a classic film because um, they just kind of, uh, the, the Germans are sort of defeated by their own lust for the Ark, I guess, and when they open Pandora's box, uh, they suffer. Um, yeah, it's humility which saves the heroes, isn't it? I suppose. I've never, I never saw the usage of the Ark as a radio to talk to God. I was kind of interested <laughs> in that. Um, there's sort of a tag joke ending where back in DC, the Ark is sort of warehoused in some massive government building where Indy can never get to it, even though he wants to get back at it. And that's kind of where that film ends. So, thoughts? Do you want to start with some thoughts? <laughs> You know, I mean, I have the, the same thought watching this film again this time that I did the previous six or seven times, yeah. which is um, I think this is a great film. Um, it's been said by a lot of other people besides me. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, why do I love this film so much? You know, I can I can count the ways it's it's the pacing, which is, I think, you know, well judged. It is the look of the film, which is beautiful. It's the music. It's the cinematography. It has so many very memorable, well-formed well shot set pieces yes 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 but of all those things it is the characters i think it's indie um in part it's skillful writing and the greater part i think is the skillful casting this film is you know the film where we enjoy spending two hours with harrison ford he's heroic but he's not a goody two-shoes he's conflicted he has a moral compass but he's also you know he's human and lazy and vulnerable he's a bit skinny he's not you know big and ripped um and not just indy is a good character i you know really enjoy the character of marion 
Um, I think she's kind of, you know, feisty and smart and she's not a kind of pure damsel in distress. She doesn't need rescuing. You know, she she can look after herself to some extent, to an extent which is realistic and she is not punching out six foot tall Nazis. But, you know, but she's kind of holding her own. And the antagonists even in this film have been well thought out and well played. There are three antagonists and they're all different and they all actually have a character. Um, there's, I think there's so much to enjoy. There's a reason why it is the uh, adventure film. Um, you know, and I'm still enjoying it now, which is not to say that it's not without flaws. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not the target audience for this film. And I wasn't even when it came out and I was 12 years old. Um, <laughs> and I, I think I know that I'm absolutely not supposed to, but I get really, really bored during these movies. I barely get through them. <laughs> Um, and I think ultimately it's, I feel no real tension. I know exactly what's going to happen. I become saturated with these fights and these chases and all the movement. Uh, there's no, for, I'm going to disagree with you adamantly on the character thing. I think it's all caricatures. <laughs> I just don't, I don't like the characters. They seem very one dimensional and just pulled right out of, uh, uh, the stock shop. So I, I, I think maybe I have a medical problem and I'll tell you why, because, um, <laughs> You know, the hyperactive kids take Ritalin and it stimulates them to the point where they, they get so excited that they calm down. Right. But I, I, I don't know what the problem is with me. I, you'd think I'd either calm down or I'd get equally excited by watching some a hyperactive film like this. But um, I, it, doesn't, it doesn't do anything for me. I just, it just leaves me kind of dead. I know I'm supposed to be moved or excited. and um, So I never get into these films. It's really hard for me to to enjoy them. And it's funny because I would say the same thing when I was younger too. I mean, I loved Star Wars, um, which is, you know, a couple of years before this. Um, but I was even younger. I think I was eight or nine years old when Star Wars came out. So I was probably even more impressionable. But even as a kid, I didn't really like these kinds of films. Um, and I think it's for opposite reasons. I think it's, I don't, I don't find the characters that original or interesting or very endearing. And then I just get, I, I get worn down. I feel just bludgeoned with action scenes. I can't just, I mean, an action scene I think really hits and it's effective if it comes out of, out of inaction or if it comes out of a real character need, but this seems to come out of story need and franchise need. Like they have to yeah. have these moments. And as a result, they feel inauthentic you know Indiana Jones is going to survive. You know he's going to uh, kill a lot of people intentionally or unintentionally, but never really suffer a serious injury himself. <laughs> you know the Nazis are going to go down. It's the kind of film that normally I just wouldn't even see. And I did, I know, I've seen it one time, so unlike you, I haven't seen it six times. I've seen it one time, and then I saw it again, um, geez, four, probably more, 40 years later, more than 40 years later. And I had the same reaction. There, there is a name for the... The, the, the um, condition that I have? The condition, yeah, that you describe. Uh, I think the diagnosis is adulthood. I think it's when... <laughs> or early onset curmudgeondom. <laughs> so you're more like Indiana Jones than you admit. Uh, the, that's, the I would, see, the thing is I would probably find the documentary about him as an archaeologist far more interesting. Or uh, just a story about a real archaeologist I think I would find uh, probably more, more engaging. Um, and I think it, it doesn't help that these are, and Dial of Destiny sort of proves it, they, they are very, very uh, formulaic. And I'll, I'll sort of expand on what you said earlier. Um, you have to find 
a minor antiquity to unlock a major one. <laughs> you have to find some other bizarre thing that helps you unlock the machine, the anciently um, engineered machine that, that, that holds the other um, antiquity that you're in search of. Um, they start in, you know, the films start in the United States in both cases, but they start in one country, you search for something, um, and then return Indy back to the, the boring kind of normal world by the very end. Um, someone comes and sets him off with a disruption on some new adventure. There's a stop off in an African country that gets torn <laughs> apart by the protagonists and the Nazis. Uh, and then uh, you get onto a boat to recover another treasure. Uh, Nazis end up with the other treasure. Um, they choose a terrible time, in this case, a location to open up Pandora's box. Um, and then <laughs> India's always right. And then he ends up back home. So I, I think part of it is just the, the formulaic nature of them as well. And you're, you're right, it really de- bo- uh, borrows from the old classics like Gunga Dean, which I think is great. It's a, it's a sort of an homage to it, but you've got to advance the, the, the genre a little bit, I think, and I don't know that they really do that. There are. I do have some problems or some questions about Raiders of the Lost Ark, yeah. and that's you know, largely because of the, the, the pockets of Gunga Dean that it picks. Yeah. Um, uh, I may have told you this before. I think we might have mentioned this on a um, on the pod before. Uh, I showed uh, this film to my children, and we all kind of sat together. The whole family sat together yeah. and we watched it and enjoyed it. And um, at the end of it, well, in fact, the following day after breakfast, my daughter, I asked her, um, what did you think of, of Raiders of the Lost Ark? And she said, that was the most racist film I've seen in my life. <laughs> And, uh, and uh, she's kind of right that the film you know, has, has very little interest in the brown people yeah. and, um, you know, they are kind of objects to be blown up or, or slaughtered or murdered. Yeah. Or, you know, um, I, part of me is prepared to forgive the film that because, and, and I'm, this is a bit of a stretch, um, because the film is kind of a homage or a pastiche of 1930s serials. And so I feel like it is allowed to inherit some of the attitudes of those 1930s serials. But maybe that's not really appropriate or good enough. Um, And it feels a little bit like... um, uh, what's what's that very famous film about uh, the Ku Klux Klan, Birth of a Nation? Birth of a Nation yeah. it's, it's a little bit like kind of showing Birth of a Nation and saying, well, you know, it's all right to watch this film about lynchings because that was just the attitude back then. Yeah. And we should enjoy the film for what it is today. Whereas actually, you know what, lynchings were never all right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and maybe these racial stereotypes also were never all right, yeah. even in 1981. It's a film made by... Europeans and Americans yep. for you know, white Europeans and Americans. And I think at the time... I doubt whether Lucas and Spielberg imagined or cared that there might be brown people who would see this yeah. film and, and uh, be interested in what happens in it. It has all those kind of white saviour tropes. You know, there are genuine problems about it. Uh, but I sadly, maybe because of the age I was when I saw it, or, yeah. and I think in part because of the sheer exuberant energy of the filmmaking on display, I still enjoy this film. And I think there is still you know, a lot of valuable lessons to be learned from it. I think one thing that surprises me is that Dial of Destiny repeats a lot of the same mistakes, even though the nas- the audience is far more international, it's far more global now. Um, they they do the same thing. They went into Cairo in the first film and ripped it up and killed a lot of brown people. They go into Tangiers and they're stealing property from the locals and mowing them down <laughs> by driving vehicles all over them in the streets and firing guns inadvertently. And it's... Um, they they repeat the same mistake. Um, yeah. So I, I the the I mentioned it in the first film the wardrobe, they sort of try to undo that mistake in Dial of Destiny in 
it's crazy. The, the gown that Marion is forced to put on in the middle of the desert at an archaeological dig is this nearly, it's like the satiny, um, nearly the uh, wedding gown. I think we're supposed to, you know, get ideas that uh, she's going to be a bride. But it, it, and it starts out as a perfectly effective body covering. But after being torn at and she's groped at and it ends up being used as bandaging, there's not much left to it. It's almost this excuse to take her from being covered to being a, a sex symbol um, through, the, through the wardrobe, whereas if, if Phoebe Waller-Bridge as Helen in the second film, she actually slaps someone. Someone tries to grab at her dress or something like that, and she slaps um, <laughs> the guy. So, I mean, that's the update in terms of uh, uh, the Me Too movement, I suppose, or, or women not just being sex symbols on screen. Um, but it's funny that, uh, yeah, the, the going to Africa and killing brown people thing has not been remedied in the script in, in 42 <laughs> years' time. So um, I think, you know, these films kind of depend on a certain compliance from the, the, the audience that we're just going to accept all this action as it washes over us. But that's why I wanted to do kind of an in-depth uh, synopsis, because when you, when you repeat the actual storyline back t- to an audience, it's, it's just, it sounds ludicrous. And I think when you were when you were going through the transportation modes on the first film, I thought, yes, all of that happens and it's all just ludicrous. So I think it's important to, to and these aren't films that people are going to reflect on when they leave the cinema for a long period of time, I don't think. But when you do think back on it, it just becomes kind of a ludicrous story. And I, I was surprised how little they pushed the genre, they pushed the franchise in 2023 compared to the 1981 film. Yep, you're right. It's and. Uh, Strangely enough, you know, does money have something to do with that? I think we'll talk. We should. About we should. That. Um, well, should we? I, I hesitate to, to suggest this now because I'm worried what you will say. I'm going to suggest that we play "Who Am I?" But now I'm frightened of what you're going to say. Oh, should no. we play? Let's play. Let's play "Who Am I?" I very. I know who I am on these ones. Yes. Who am I? So I'm, I'm going to guess, are you that angry audience member who walks out after 15 no, minutes? Is no. that you? In this? I don't even make it that long. Um, <laughs> I am in the first film. I'm Alfred Molina. Oh! And in the second film, I'm Antonio Banderas. And that is to say that I am dead, and I would never <laughs> survive any of these escapades. I just don't have it in me—the swashbuckling and the lassoing and the gunshots—and I can't drive like these guys. I just would not make it very long. So I'm a brown person who dies before the midpoint. <laughs> If I had to choose who I was going to be in either of these films, yeah. um, I mean, you know, part of me wants to, ah, yeah, I want to be Indy, uh, but you know, Indy gets beaten up and chucked off things and smashed in the face an awful lot, and I'm not sure I would actually choose to be him after all. But I'm, you know, I I feel like you know, the person I'm most like, and I'm flattering myself as I always do in this segment, is Marcus Brody, who's Denim Elliott's character in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay. Yeah, first of all, because he's British and posh. Yeah. Uh, just like me. And secondly, because what I really like about his character in this film is that he sees the bigger picture in a way that Indy doesn't. It's Mm. very clear from the conversation they have that he knows that when they find the lost Ark of the Covenant, the government will not let them keep it. But Indy doesn't realise this. Um, But the way that this this knowledge is transmitted is very subtle and it's just done through Denim Elliott's performance. It's understated. It's... uh, you know, very nice little scene. This scene where India is preparing to go on an adventure, yeah. you know, and he's an exci- excited and like a boy, and and um, Denim Elliott is being the adult in the room. So, yeah, you know, that's why I would like to. That's why I would like to be. And he dresses well as well. He does dress well. 
And he's he's a real academic. He's a department head, I think, isn't he? He seems like an Indies boss at the school. Yeah, he has he has tenure. He's got ten, he has tenured. Tenure. Yeah. Um, and they do, you know, they they live up to that. I think that pays off at the end when, in fact, the government just warehouses the Ark um, at the very end, and you'll never find it again. Just more free bureaucracy than ancient machinery and gadgetry. And both of these films suggest that the ancients could develop these just incredible technologies. And I just I keep asking myself, why can't we do that now? <laughs> the Ark of the Covenant, Radio to God, Dial of Destiny, Time Travel, <laughs> Fixing the Past. Why, 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 how could they do it two, three, four, five, six thousand years ago? And we can't do that kind of stuff now. Whereas, whereas my iPhone runs out of battery in eight hours. <laughs> exactly. That's not, it's just, makes no sense. Makes no sense. Going backwards. Going backwards. Um, well, what, should we, let's, let's, um, uh, let's let's try and perform our, our synthesis. We'll try and kind of bring the two films together. Although it's not going to be difficult no. to bring the two films together when they are basically the same. They are in the same film. Yeah. I, I wrote down two sides of the same coin that also has two heads and will be reissued <laughs> in 40 years with two more like sides. You know what it made me think of is, um, and again, we've talked about this a few times recently, it's kind of AI. So yeah. you know, programs like MidJourney or ChatGPT or whatever, basically they've absorbed many, many you know, photographs and artworks, or they've absor- absorbed many thousands, millions of pages of text. Yeah. And they've somehow kind of swirled them together, which means that they can now produce, you know, they can spurt out stuff which you know has the, gives the impression of being something new, a new picture, a new paragraph even though actually it's just a kind of remix of all the other paragraphs and the other pictures yeah. that it's already absorbed and this new indie film kind of feels the same it's like a it's just like a mixture of callbacks yeah. it's you know, stuck in a loop but not very much original material but i personally think the original material that dial of destiny draws from it is pretty exceptional even though it too is a kind of reworking of earlier material yeah i i, I recall Raiders of the Lost Ark, one of the seven pillars of cinema, which, which, as a, as a, a comment, is probably quite racist as well. So mm. I, there's there's me being mm-hmm. white guy indie again. Yeah. I think Raiders of the Lost Ark is high art. What can compare? Why not just take all those frames and shuffle them up a little bit and and and, um, and shovel them out the door again? Yeah, I I think I probably would have liked it more. Um, or all of them more, if maybe just there was the one film. I think it just gets spread out very, very thin and regurgitated. And I think that's why I like the two sides of the same coin um, uh, analogy, because it's all about money. I think this is a great argument for big studios putting big bucks into illiterate universal appeal films based on their franchise and their intellectual property and that that's the potential of it it's just going to make money and i don't think i wouldn't say there's a lot of great cinema going on here there's very capable filmmaking and fantastic uh shots and camera work and technique and visual effects but i don't think they're i don't i just don't think they're great stories i think that's my biggest um, problem and then i think that we need to remember the name helena shaw and I think you have said that you don't think sh- that Phoebe Waller-Bridge has the maybe the action star potential or the screen appeal, but I would, it just feels like that's where this franchise is going. Her cont- her arc goes from not caring about any of this stuff to maybe caring caring about it because you know she's saying it's all about the money, and I think that's another telling thing. I think I mentioned that in the first film that it's really be it's just about the money and not interested. Um, 
in the antiquities, and I think that's what the films are now too. It's just money. It's a business. It's a business. It's a, these these films are generally a, a a real indicator of how kind of shallow and corporate um, a lot of films have become. Got to pay the rent. Someone's got to pay yeah, the rent. Oh, well, I, they got big rent. That's the problem. Maybe if they brought their <laughs> living expenses down, the rent wouldn't have to be so high. <laughs> I think there are some differences between the old film and the new film which are worth mm. talking about. I think you know, if the films kind of haven't changed, I think what has changed is the world around them. Um, I know we've kind of talked about this before. In, in when Raiders was released in 1981, you know, it was it was okay, it was normal, it was interesting to make what was you know a kind of horror film about religion. You know, it's very kind of you know it's an Abrahamic. Um, kind of riff you know it's it's a very interesting idea about making something which is both terrifying and yet also Mm. something that lives inside the bible um you know there's a lot of assumed religious sentiment in raiders of the lost ark which has disappeared in dial of destiny Mm. in 2023 indiana jones is is decidedly secular the dial of destiny is a thing of science isn't it it's an object Mm -hmm. used for observing and predicting a natural phenomenon it's not a mystical spiritual device and it's not a radio for talking to god there is no god in dial of destiny there is no magic just science mm. i thought that was an interesting change mm. and i was i was trying to figure out you know what what are these films about and i know you will tell me they are Money. about 300 million dollars yep. and they are about trying to recoup but i i think there are themes here and i think they have some themes in common i reckon the theme of raiders of the lost ark is look after the pennies and the pounds will look after themselves it's saying i think the theme of the film is that you should take care of the small things the things that you can change there's this kind of you know crazy moment when you realize that nothing that Indiana Jones does in the whole of Raiders of the Lost Ark affects the final outcome. If he hadn't turned up, if the Nazis had found the Ark and then you know taken the Ark to that little island and opened it up, the Ark would have killed them all just the same. Mm. You know the world would be just the same. Indy doesn't really make any difference. And I think I think the message of Raiders of the Lost Ark and to an extent the message of the Dial of Destiny is that destiny is not in your hands. Um, I think both of the films suggest that history is a tidal wave. If you are lucky, you can surf it, but you cannot expect to change its direction. That's what I think both of these films are about. And in an era when the main existential threat um, that we face now is not necessarily the rise of the far right it's not nazism and it's not radios from god it's climate change i think the notion of observing the world as a tidal wave that you can surf but not move um, is a dangerous idea and i'm not sure that i'm completely a fan of this under underlying theme mm. but maybe ah maybe i'm reaching mm. maybe it's all about the benjamins i think for me that's what it's about i think it's accidentally about some other things i think it's accidentally about um imperialism i mean it's like stealing from the past and going to these other countries that shouldn't have these antiquities or shouldn't have these artifacts and then taking them back to the united states or england or germany or whatnot so for me it's much more about that because that's so on the surface i mean you've done some nice digging there to get some other themes out of it but i think it's about the benjamins and i think it's about um god it's sort of about white power in some ways um, oh, yeah, I mean, you, yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah, I suppose, especially when you keep going back to the Nazis again and again. I think that's very telling. So, 
Um, and you know, there's certainly maybe there's a little bit of American exceptionalism in the stories as well. Like Indy's the good guy, the Nazis the bad guys, but they're both going to. It's very it's very telling that they're both Nazis and Americans are going to these places and shooting them up and pillaging. Um, the antiquities and then taking them back home or changing the world with them. So for me, that's what it's more about, which is what I think those are two sides of the same coin. Yet again, going back to that analogy that this sort of this white power, white control side of the coin and this um, this imperialism, this uh, pillaging of other countries for antiquities. Oh, man, Ev- everything is post-colonialism, isn't it? I think Once so, you yeah. start to look underneath the layers, this is, this is the story behind everything, isn't it? This is the underlying theme of, of 20th and 21st century life. Yeah. When are we going to sort this out, man? When are we going to sort it out? I don't know. I have a very narrow-minded view, so maybe I'm just too glued to that idea. But um, you do see it in cinema. If you look for it hard enough, I think you'll, you'll definitely find it. Mm. Uh, well, um Let's let's talk about something which is not Indiana oh. Jones for a minute. Let's talk about also playing oh. at this theatre. Oh, yeah. uh, and I'm gonna, I want to go first yeah, this go time, ahead. please, um, because uh, also playing at my theatre was Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Oh my! You did the, the trifecta. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so we sat and watched that last Sunday yeah. as well. Uh, 1984, it's yeah. like the sequel prequel to Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. Um, I, I think we might have talked about this before when we talked about sequels. Secretly, in my heart of hearts, I think it is the best one. Oh. You know, clearly, it's not the best Indiana Jones film, but actually maybe it is. Oh. Uh, what I love about it is that it starts with um, Kate Capshaw singing Anything Goes. You know, and that is the theme of the whole film. Yeah. And it just sticks to that principle that, you know what, anything goes. And it chucks absolutely every idea that Spielberg had. And it just flicks them at the screen you know, in, in, in fast order. Um, I think it's a great fun, Temple of Doom. Um, and I feel like I've watched it again, watching Dial of Destiny. Okay. But yeah, that was what was playing at my theatre. What else have you seen? Please, um, something that doesn't have Indiana Jones in it. I did. Yeah, yeah. I stayed away from Indiana Jones. I'm surprised you went in for more. <laughs> Um, I saw Past Lives, which is something that I think we're going to talk about in the future. So I don't want to talk about it too much, but um, okay. I did see that. And then um, I listened to a podcast. I know this is not a theater. <laughs> I listened to a podcast, which was a discussion between Ezra Klein, who's a New York Times columnist, and Tom Hanks. <laughs> what was this podcast? We must give them props now. It was lovely. I guess Tom has a book about, I think it's a novel about um, another great American film or something like that. So it's sort of a novel about the film industry. And they talked a lot about writing and how Tom Hanks still works on a typewriter. And they talked about a number, and he collects typewriters. In fact, he's, it's, he suggests that he's going to send Ezra Klein a typewriter by the end of the um <laughs> The podcast. So it's just, it's lovely to hear Tom Hanks uh, just as who he is. And he's a smart guy and he's, you know, he's chosen his uh, characters very well. And he's, he, Ezra's asking him, you know, how, how do you have time for all this? And he admits that, you know, he does maybe two or three projects a year. And, you know, whether it's a, you know, big role or a smaller role. Um, and then he just has lots of downtime. You know, if you are an actor of his stature and you only have to do a couple of films a year and each one has, what, maybe a 45, 60 day shoot time or something like that. Um, you've got months. You've got months and months. So he's able to type <laughs> entire books and things in his free time. Um, and then the other thing, I again, I'm listening. I'm listening. I'm not just seeing things. Um, I recently discovered Nick Drake. He's a 
ah. Englishman from what late sixties, early seventies, and I've just been listening to his music nonstop. I had heard him in various places, and I just never knew who he was. And then via something that I did see a little bit, it does connect to um, the Robert Downey um, uh, documentary that he just made for his father. I think it's called Senior. So I saw that. Um, Incidentally, my wife was watching it and I caught pieces of it and then I heard a Nick Drake song come and then we had to scour it. We scoured the credits and I found the name Nick Drake. So I didn't know mm. who he was and now he's all I listen to. So past lives, Tom Hanks, Nick Drake. Not bad. Bit, bit classier than my watching. Yep. As usual, you <laughs> stuck to character. You stuck to character. <laughs> well, I bet Temple of Doom informed your viewing of uh, the other two films, maybe. It did, because it was the same as the other two films. That's right. Yes, yes. <laughs> this has been the, the, the one and a half real cinema club, the 1.1 real cinema club. Thank you for joining us as always. Um, next next week, we yeah. have a, a special uh, popcorn counter, very exciting uh, yeah. interview with uh, Michael Primer, mm-hmm. who is a Hollywood sound recordist extraordinaire, yeah. worked with uh, Christopher Nolan uh, and uh, kind of worked with everybody, actually, really. Worked with me, too. And and with you, absolutely. <laughs> this guy has the golden CV, exactly. Um, so very interesting chat with him next week. Very exciting. And then the week after that, we're watching Oppenheimer. Yeah. Uh, so it's uh, Christopher Nolan followed by Christopher Nolan. Um, so join us for that. Uh, in the meantime, uh, don't forget, history is a tidal wave, but maybe if we all push together, we can, we can, uh, we can change the direction. Uh, thank you for joining us, uh, and we will see you next week. Goodbye, everyone.